On this week's Behind the Idea, we're talking Kinder Morgan once more, this time with Kirk Spano, Seeking Alpha author. He talks about what we got wrong, and first he points to our focus on the rearview mirror and why people who complained about the dividend cut a few years ago were missing the picture. They reduced their dividend, right? So you had all these dividend investors start to cry. Oh, I just got kindered. I got kindered. They took away my dividend. They took away my dividend. Well, what did you want management to do? Let the company go bankrupt? Then he looks forward and explains why there's still hidden value in Kinder Morgan shares. I think that there's a pretty good chance, based on what Richard Kinder's been doing lately, uh, that he does start spinning off those assets. And if he does, all of a sudden, this becomes a very low-debt company, and that dividend goes way up. Our first podcast on the stock wasn't popular. Readers felt we overemphasized the bad, misunderstood the company, picked on it unfairly, and giggled too much besides. Kirk was one of the people who disagreed with us, so we were excited to dig in further with him. Did we get a better understanding of Kinder Morgan? Have a listen and find out on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. We're going back to Kinder Morgan, the pipeline company. Our last discussion raised concerns about the narrative around the company's limited exposure to commodity pricing and its use of non-GAAP metrics. Many people disagreed with our analysis. One of those people was Seeking Alpha author Kirk Spano, who joins us today. He recently wrote a bullish article about the company, and he wrote several comments in response to our podcast. So we're eager to hear what he thinks about what we missed and how he's viewing KMI, its competitive advantages, and the way it presents its business to investors. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to understand what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any of the stocks we plan to discuss. I guess we should have checked. Kirk, do you have any positions in, you have a position in Kinder Morgan, correct? Yes, uh, my clients have a position in Kinder Morgan and have for about a year and a half. Okay, great. And we'll get going in a second, but first, a quick word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, Kirk, welcome on Behind the Idea. How are you doing? Good, good. Great, great. All so, right, you're not, not going to feel good after this, though. Oh, I, I expect <laughs> you to give us a good roasting, yeah. But we're here for it. We're here for it. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually, I think, um, you know, in fairness to you guys, I think you uh, looked at Kinder Morgan uh, the way that most people who look at companies do. I think you looked in the rearview mirror. And um, you you know that little sticker on your mirror that says objects in the mirror are, might be closer than they appear? I think in this case, it's the opposite. I think things are further away in the past than you think maybe. I, I think that there's recency bias that most investors have. Oh, my God, something bad happened in 2015. I hated in 2019. And, you know, the combination of time and management uh, and business conditions you know, over four and a half, five years, a lot of things change. So let's just start with, 
with that in that context where do you is it is that what you think we missed most was the wrong perspective or where do you think that we were just you have the floor what 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 else do you first want to get off before we get into any questions well you know i think the first thing again is you extrapolated 2015 to 2019 and in the oil and gas space whether it's the pipeline companies or the emps or the majors the the pace of change in the energy infrastructure, and we were talking about this before we came on, is, is incredibly fast. So the changes that Kinder Morgan has made since 2015, and really it's just since 2015, because beginning in 2016 to now, if you take a look at the stock's total return versus the S&P 500 total return, they're almost identical. So it's not like this stock has lagged for the last uh, four and a quarter years. It's basically been a market performer. The company has has done a lot to mitigate its risk, its exposure to uh, oil prices and natural gas prices. Uh, and it has really addressed some of the things that you guys brought up. And, you know, I know that if you had had time to go dig deeper, which we'll do today, um, you would have seen that. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's get in first to, I think part of the challenge is what is the right, if you were talking about a full market cycle, if we believe that full market cycles still happen, uh, it's figuring out what's the right cycle. So I guess first let's start with before, before 2016, what happened in 2015 and 16? In other words, if we got it wrong, how would you explain it? Well, what happened in 2015 happened to everybody, right? So the Saudi Arabians started pumping a lot of oil, and, and OPEC in general, and crashed the oil market. Well, at the margin, about 15% of Kinder Morgan's business was pretty impacted by oil prices back in 2015. Uh, also, a lot of their customers had you know, problems because they were completely exposed to oil uh, and gas prices uh, back in 2015. So gas prices have fallen for different reasons than oil prices, but oil prices, you know, really Kinder Morgan's exposure right now is down to like 11% oil. And back then it might've been 15%. So it, it was the marginal profits, the marginal revenues that they lost. And these aren't tech companies, right? They don't have 85% margins. They're not biotech. They don't have 80% margins. These are companies with normal business margins that have to deal with debt for CapEx. Uh, so they've gotten a break with low interest rates, but they also have to just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's creating a widget, right? Every time you put a dollar in, you might get a dollar 20 out. And when the, people paying you for the widget stop paying you for the widget, well, all of a sudden you can go into the negative pretty quickly. So, and we've seen that across all sorts of industries. Talk to General Electric about that. So back in 2015, I believe they had one can uh, pipeline project canceled. Uh, a couple of others, they had to refinance. Um, I think they ended up reversing the flow on one pipeline instead of building another because two of the companies that were going to finance it, they backed out. Um, and then again, uh, their CO2 business and, and, and some of their oil business is, is, is instead of take or pay contracts, 
uh, they're exposed to the commodity price and, and they got crushed on that just like everybody else. So back in 2015, going into, two, I think it was the very end of 2015, they decided, and it could have been 2016, I'd have to look at the calendar, but they, they, they reduced their dividend, right? So you had all these dividend investors start to cry. Oh, I just got kindered. I got kindered. They took away my dividend. <laughs> they took away my dividend. Well, what did you want management to do? Let the company go bankrupt? I mean, this whole got kindered thing is for people with low emotional IQs. And, 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 and I hate to be that harsh about it, but, you know, my, my brother's in the finance industry too, and he's at uh, Northern Trust, and he's been at Vanguard and, and, and ING. We worked together in an office about 16, 17, 18 years ago in a firm that we helped start that's a billion-dollar firm now. And, you know, we were just support staff and salespeople. But, you know, we we started laughing at some of the investment managers because we called them bull market managers. As long as everything was going up, they were brilliant. But then as soon as, you know, business climate changed or there was a bear market, you know, then it was somebody else's fault. And I think that's the whole got kindred thing. You know, it, it's just people who didn't understand the risks going in. It's their fault. And pretty much if you don't understand the risks going into an investment, it is your fault. I have had to live with that. There's risks that I didn't recognize in my career. That's my fault, you know, unless I was lied to. And a couple times I was lied to. A couple times I just missed it. But if you're taking a look at a company like Kinder Morgan and you don't recognize that, hey, they have X amount of exposure to energy prices and their counterparties, people who have to pay them for things, have even more exposure to commodity prices, then 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 what are you thinking about? You know, I mean, that is something that is very basic. And if you're an investor and you don't do that digging, if you don't get that basic cursory knowledge, you know, my brother and I would just tell people, you know, then you shouldn't invest your money in the first place or you should buy index funds. You have no business picking out companies if you don't get down to that basic of a level. And that and that's just checkerboard stuff. You know, so, you know, we'll get into some chess moves here later on. But, you know, the fact that folks think that something happened at Kinder Morgan, no, it happened to the entire industry. And the fact that Kinder Morgan wasn't in the 30 or 35 percent of companies that went bankrupt, I think that speaks pretty well for the company, don't you? Yeah, I well, first of all, you're uh, you're crying and. The whining, I think, uh, so <laughs> certainly I felt that way a little bit as I was going through the comments on our podcast. I think maybe I kindred myself a little bit in talking about the company. But I wanted to get it. So I think we have some open questions then based on your comments. And one is you mentioned sort of understanding the risks involved in investing in Kinder Morgan. Why don't you just sort of Tell us what you see as the major risks at play today in 2019 and how commodity prices do or don't fit into the company's risk profile. That was a key part of the discussion after our podcast. And I think listeners will want to understand what your perspective is on the overall risk picture, as well as whatever commodity price exposure may or may not exist for Kinder Morgan. Right. So 
oil isn't a very big risk for them. They have most of their oil uh, uh, hedged. Uh, their exposure to oil hedged, which is just a few percent, I think like 4% anyway. Um, and then their CO2 business, CO2 business is pretty much hedged at this point, And they're really just transporting the CO2 that's used in uh, enhanced oil recovery, which is growing, right? You know, Occidental is in the news right now because of the Anadarko deal. But between Occidental, Chevron, Exxon, and Conoco, you've got four companies and there's a couple independents as well you know, that are really trying to push the envelope on enhanced oil recovery because, you know, the decline rates in fracked wells is extremely high in the second and third year. And they're learning, and I think they're basically there now. I think it'll come online soon uh, because Accidental's been experimenting with it, and I know Chevron has been too. But they're able to take enhanced oil recovery, which is traditionally for just regular wells, uh, conventional wells, and it looks like they can apply it to non-conventional wells now. And the neat thing about it is that when you, essentially it's like a refrack, you you do this process and it actually reduces the amount of carbon dioxide put into the air on net by 30 to 40%. So, you know, the CO2 business, which I talked about in the last uh, article, is interesting, and we'll get to that more later. But the big risk here isn't oil or CO2 for, for Kinder Morgan. In fact, I think that those are almost exclusively bullish for them. It's natural gas. So what if natural gas has an extended period under $2 a million BTU again, and you get a wave of natural gas reorganizations? What if companies in the natural gas space have to reorganize because they're just not making any money? Uh, that could happen. Now, I don't think it's going to happen because the uh, rate at which exports are increasing is very high. You know, back in my market watch days, I told people, and I think it was 2000, I think it was 2016 actually, I told everybody that the United States would be exporting about 12% of their natural gas that we, that we uh, capture uh, by like 2019, 2020. And by next year, we're probably going to be there. So, you know, it might be a year later. I mean, I might be off by a year, but our our natural gas exports are tremendous. So what happens to the natural gas uh, market? You know, could it stay depressed for a while? Uh, You know, it could maybe for a year, maybe for nine months. Uh, But it's probably going to rebound again as those natural gas exports increase. You're going to capture more natural gas from the Permian, of course, because those companies have been flaring virtually all of it off or giving it away. And now that the pipelines from companies like Kinder Morgan are coming online, they can take away that natural gas. So you're going to get more natural gas in the market. But but that is the big risk. The big risk for Kinder Morgan and Williams and Enbridge is if some of their counterparties just say, hey, we can't pay right now. And we're going to go through a, a bankruptcy, a reorganization, and you're going to be SOL on on your natural gas for, you know, nine months or a year. So that that's the big risk. The big risk is there's another shock coming and in the natural gas space, because even though they have take or pay contracts, if the money's not there, the money's not there, right? So they could get slow paid on a lot of stuff and forced into renegotiations, which I don't actually think would be very effective. I I don't know that 
Kinder Morgan, Williams, and Enbridge will ever renegotiate. I think at some point they're just going to say, look, pass the cost on to somebody else. It ain't going to be us. But that doesn't mean that they can't go through a bump. And, and I think that, you know, that would probably be the thing that I'd be most concerned about is uh, natural gas prices stay depressed for an extended period, period of time. I don't think it's going to happen, but we should be aware that it could. Okay, so it sounds like we actually agree more or less with this idea that commodity prices do have some bearing on Kinder Morgan's fate and also with the idea that the take or pay contracts may not necessarily be as protective to Kinder Morgan and its investors as well, people thought. Sort of. The the uh, it, it's not as if they're trading natural gas, right? So that's not their their concern. Their concern is the people who are trading natural gas or selling natural gas being able to fulfill what they're putting through the pipeline and then turn around and pay. You know, Kinder Morgan can turn off the pipeline, right? If they're not getting paid, they can turn off the pipeline. So, but that doesn't help them any. So they could get slow paid and that could cause them to, you know, have to dig into this $1.4 billion cash surplus that they have this year. Now, could they could they get slow paid to the tune of $1.4 billion? which is their excess cash this year. I mean, I doubt it, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. So to say that they're impacted by energy prices, you know, you really got to be clear about what you're saying there because everybody's impacted by energy prices. The farmer is impacted by energy prices, but it's not because he's selling natural gas, right? It's because he needs gasoline or diesel to power his tractors and, and things like that. So, you know, let's be real clear about what that really means. It means that just like back during the financial crisis, the counterparties couldn't pay their bills. You know, there's a possibility that a handful of natural gas producers can't pay their bills at some point. And, you know, uh, would that be a permanent state? Probably not. I, I don't think we're anywhere close to natural gas falling off a cliff the way coal is about to fall off of a cliff. But, you know, we should be aware as an investor, you know, what could hurt our money and we need to analyze, is that a risk that we're willing to take? So, so we need to be clear about what the risk really is. So maybe Kirk, if you could walk us through it, cause I think some of the, some of the challenges we're getting at in terms of the exposure, maybe we should just go, what is the business model for KMI? They have several different segments. Uh, I think we've got, KML, we've got two different pipeline segments, terminals, CO2 are the ones that I think they break out in their filings. But like, what is their business model? How should we, coming to it fresh, you, you talked about the widget earlier, but what sort of, what's the right way to think about KMI and their business? So they really have four business segments, right? At this, at this point, they don't have much in Canada. They sold off Trans Mountain. It's a very small entity that they have left up there and it gets folded into these other four segments at this point uh, or it will soon uh, in canada i think they have they have under a billion dollars of assets left uh, they have a uh, transport you know they have some terminals and then they send jet fuel to uh, one of the airports i think i they actually think that could get sold off it, does, it doesn't make sense for them to operate in canada anymore unless they're going to you know, merge with somebody, but 
they're, they're probably going to sell off the majority of those assets. Maybe they keep the terminals. Maybe they don't. I think they should sell them. I think they should sell everything in Canada. There's just, you know, there's like two things up there that are worth even talking about. But the, the, the company, and they've repatriated most of that money, right? So when, when Gary Trudeau, and I say Gary Trudeau because I think the cartoonist is, is smarter than the president up there. You know, I, I, do you guys get that joke? Are you, are you too young for that? It's Doonesbury. We, we, we get it. Okay. I just, just, just making sure. I mean, I didn't hear a heavy sigh. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to millennials, aren't I? So, uh, all right. No, no. We, I read that every day uh, for, <laughs> with my breakfast cereal for a long time. I just wasn't. I didn't know if I, I didn't want to step on you there. But oh, you, yeah, thought, you no. thought I made a mistake, huh? No, 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 no. I, <laughs> yeah, that's I, why we invited you on the podcast. Uh, no, I, I tell you, you what, I was. You uh, fell right into it. <laughs> I, I made a joke on Fox Business one time, and 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 everybody in in the studio looked at me, and they didn't know if I did it on purpose. And to me, it was funny, but you know, they didn't crack up, so I I just moved on. Yeah, I've done it with Dan Dicker too. He's he's a pretty straight arrow, and. Uh, I've I've made I think two jokes on his show before and they didn't go over well so I was like all right just just skip the jokes yeah I thought we weren't serious enough we <laughs> weren't serious enough when we first tried Kinder Morgan that was the feedback we got and, oh, so, yeah, and then yeah, here you are here you are you guys giggled like little girls and you didn't know what you're talking about I mean come on I mean we're gonna giggle like little girls know what you're talking about and make fun of people at least so you know pretend to cry or something but okay so there's four segments. With Kinder Morgan, you got natural gas pipelines, it's like 60% of their business, maybe a little bit less. Product pipelines, right? So uh, diesel, jet fuel, gasoline, liquids, condensates, things like that. It's a little under 20% of the business. CO2, what's interesting is right now, CO2 business is growing. And they're, you know, that's, uh, they're, they're the biggest CO2 transporter in the country. And it's virtually all in Texas, uh, the Permian. Um, that's like 11 or 12% of their business. And then a little under 20% of their business is their terminals, which stores uh, something like 150 million barrels of refined petroleum products, chemicals, ethanol. I think they have some steel even. And, you know, that is the company, right? So the vast majority of the company is natural gas pipelines. Uh, think of it as their natural gas pipeline is a little bit bigger than Williams, right? So those two companies and then Enbridge and Enterprise get merged with anybody yet. You know, those those are the companies that are dominating that space. Nat- and they are, and Kinder Morgan is the biggest natural gas pipeline company in America right now. And they have, they have 70,000 miles of pipelines, which is, you know, that that's out of 84,000 miles of pipelines they have, 70,000 of it is natural gas, and then the other, whatever's left, 14 million, 14,000 is uh, the products. So when you take a look at them, you say, okay, they're mainly natural gas pipelines, but then they have ancillary businesses, which is the liquids and, you know, the, the liquid goods. Uh, oil, they have a little bit of oil now in the Permian. They actually have, I think, just a couple operating uh, oil production facilities. It doesn't make sense for them to own that. They just sell those to somebody. Uh, but it's where they practice their um, their they they have their own enhanced oil recovery. So basically, two thirds of the company is natural gas pipelines. One third is everything else. Something that investors should consider is 
should this company spin some assets off? Should it sell some assets? Well, their debt ratio has come down dramatically. You know, their their uh, debt to EBITDA is, is doing pretty good. Their EV to EBITDA is, is doing very good, and we'll cover those numbers in a second. But they could spin off basically most of the liquids pipelines. And in your head, you should think about this. If they wanted to get ahead of um, oil, the, the end of the oil age, which I, I said started, you know, about three years ago, you know, and it's going to take, you know, decades. But if they want to get ahead of the end of the oil age, you know, why wouldn't they start spinning off some of their, their liquids assets? Take a look at their terminals. Do they really want to operate these terminals? You know, it's it's 18% of the company, 17% of the company growing a little bit. Why do they have them? You know, why wouldn't they sell these terminals and, and, and have them be bolt-on acquisitions for companies that are bigger in the space, right? So I think that there's a pretty good chance based on what Richard Kinder's been doing lately uh, that he does start spinning off those assets. And if he does, all of a sudden this becomes a very low debt company and that dividend goes way up. So I would just keep that in mind because I know that one of your concerns, Mike, was that you're worried that, well, they might just grow to grow to grow to grow for the sake of growing, right? And that really hasn't happened since 2016. Their their CapEx has stayed about the same, you know, three years running. And in in the presentation, and, you know, their presentation is pretty awesome. They talk about how ICF, which is a giant consulting firm in the energy space, says the United States needs $800 billion of infrastructure development between now and 2035. And I just laugh at that. Because there's no way that we need $800 billion of development. Um, one statistic that I can throw out that will make you think is that coal power plants are retiring very rapidly at this point. And, and, and that, that rate is accelerating because utilities are starting to come to the conclusion that it's cheaper to use alternative energy without tax breaks, without mandates, just dollar for dollar, apple for apple. It's cheaper to use alternatives at this point. In Indiana, we talked about this before the show. In Indiana, there's a utility that said, look, we'll save $4 billion if we tear down the coal power plant and put in wind, solar, and batteries. That's today. That's not five years from now. That's today. And other utilities are coming to the same conclusion. So, okay, is that positive or negative for natural gas if the utilities are going to get rid of their coal over the next 5, 10, 15 years? And it's it's positive for natural gas, but not as much as you'd think. About 60% of the retired power plants that use coal, coal-fired power plants, are switching to natural gas. The other 40% are switching to solar and wind, but that's based on last year and the year before and the year before. It's actually dropping the, the number of coal-fired power plants that are converting to natural gas. Probably within two years, be down to a third of them will be converting to natural gas and two-thirds will be alternative energy. So there is some upward demand for for infrastructure, but it's it's not based on the numbers from two, three years ago. You should base it on the numbers that are coming in two or three years. And we know that alternative energy is taking a lot of the coal-fired power plant generation. And we also know, even though the growth rate of electricity in the United States is low, uh, two, three percent a year, 100% of that is going to alternatives. 
Now what happens when EVs hit the market? When EVs hit the market, we already know that solar and wind are, are cheaper to build than coal and actually cheaper to build and maintain than continuing just to, 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 to operate a coal power plant. I mean, think about that. You can put the entire cost of building out wind and solar up against the cost of only operating coal at this point and the wind and solar wind. They win. So to think that we need to have $800 billion of, of natural gas and oil pipeline is, is just insane to me. I think the number is probably in the two to $400 billion range, uh, and most of that is going to be front-loaded. Well, Kinder Morgan must understand this because if ICF is saying that there's $800 billion of infrastructure to be built in the next 15, 16 years, Right, what does that come out to? About forty, fifty billion a year. And Kinder Morgan is one of a handful of companies, you know, about about eight or nine companies that get all that business. Why are they saying they're only gonna do two to three billion in new business every year? Right? So they're not growing for the sake of growing. They're not buying into the hype of eight hundred billion dollars of of necessary capex over the next uh, sixteen years. They're basically saying that. Eh, we're going to do 2 or $3 billion a year in new projects. And that's it. So I think they're being pretty prudent with their capital at this point. And if you go through their presentation and you start to look at the numbers, there's really only one conclusion you, come, you can come up with. And that's if the bad scenario on natural gas that I described earlier does not happen, right? If there's not a wipeout in the natural gas space, then the cash flow for these guys is just going to keep going up and up and up, the free cash flow, distributable, distributable cash flow, because their expenses are going to stay rather level. Their debt's going to come down. Then eventually their expenses are going to, their capex is going to come down. And they're just going to have all this money from these contracts to spit out. So I would expect that you're probably going to see distributable, distributable cash flow which I know, Mike, we have to talk about, is is just going to keep on increasing. So, so let's talk about why use distributable distributable cash flow versus other metrics. So, in this space, EBITDA, right? That's important. Distributable cash flow versus earnings, right? E enterprise value versus EBITDA, and then debt to EBITDA. And the 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 simple answer to why use distributable cash flow to get a, a really good grasp on what's going on with the company is because it depreciation is not a cash expense. So you need to take a look at two things. What are they spending today versus what are they writing off? So what is the EBITDA for Kinder Morgan right now? Do you know? I don't have. Eight billion, we didn't. Okay, eight, yeah. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I just, just want to see where you're at. It's $8 billion. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> all right. All right, Kirk. $8 billion. All right. We're with you. All right. So the, and the distributable cash flow is, what about $5 billion? Oh, I got the, I, the $8 billion is wrong. But eight, $5 billion is distributable cash flow, right? So if you go to slide eight, your dist distributable cash flow is $5 billion. And they're going to put two point three billion of that into dividends, correct? Right. This is we're we're working off the the Barclays presentation that we 
Yeah, you guys are on the January one. I'm on the April one. They're similar. Okay. So here, let me Google the power of. There you go. Eight billion. Yeah, that's right. I was right about that. So eight billion of adjusted EBITDA versus five billion of distributable cash flow. What do those numbers mean to you? Well, what, what's the what's the difference between the numbers? Other than three billion dollars, <laughs> right? I, <laughs> DDNA, right? It's the depreciation, right? That's not that's not a cash it's not a cash thing. So earnings before depreciation is saying eight billion, but they're saying whoa whoa whoa, we really only have five billion. So they have five billion to spread around after you know certain spending. The the, the EBITDA doesn't really matter. If it doesn't generate cash, right? So the 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 big depreciation numbers throw off what people like to use as earnings. Now, EBITDA is more important as the company grows slower and spends less on capex. Pretty agreeable statement. So as the company spends less in the future, which they will, and it just becomes a mature company collecting the tolls, which has been the sales pitch. Right, it's been, they've had this dual sales pitch. Oh, we collect tolls, but we're growing. Right, and they try to and, and they try to sizzle the steak. Right, and, and I don't deny that they've done that. And and, and the MLP industry really had a, a comeuppance to them a few years ago because they were selling perpetual growth, same way that the oil industry was. Right, the, the shale players got the crap kicked out of them too. I say different words on my podcast, so that one was light. Um, but the shale players, they they really got beat up because it is perpetual growth. But you got to keep coming back. The fossil fuel age is ending. It's going to end slow. It's going to end in pieces and, and fits and jerks. But there is no such thing as perpetual growth in the fossil fuel industry anymore. We know the coal is going to go away in about the next decade. We know the oil is going to go severe demand destruction in the next two, three decades it won't ever go away. But, you know, we'll, we'll be down to, you know, 20, 30 million barrels a day being used by the middle of the century. And, you know, and then natural gas in the second half of the century probably goes away largely as well. But for a natural gas pipeline company, why would they worry about what's going to happen in 2050, 2070, 2090, right? It's 2019 right now. Okay, before we continue, a quick break to give Oppenheimer Funds another word about their podcast, Megatrends. Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds called Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends explores and explains those opportunities. I'm your host, Manita Huja. I'm an award-winning business journalist and author. Tune in to hear me talk to the experts about thinking globally when it comes to investing. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Back to Kinder Morgan. So, Kirk, let me let me go. Let's let's get into. We, we, I think the long term outlook and also the competitive structure is things we want to get to. But let's. I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on this DCF EBIT. Uh, net income, free cash flow, dividends, et cetera. Because I think, so I'm looking again at the March presentation, slide 49, which we had fun with. And I, so I think EBITDA, you know, before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And I think DCF is basically the same as 
it's not quite EBDA, but I feel like it's similar. I think it's you're getting you it, have interest in taxes out of it, right? Is that are we on right? And, and and it's it's basically a proxy for free cash flow. That's all it is. But I guess I, I so I think and this may be where we're. I think there are two areas where we might be missing what that we didn't touch on, and I want your thoughts on it. I think one area is you're you're t- talking about the story of capex is going down, and so you do have that mismatch between a higher historical DDNA versus decreasing capex. So is that is that one area that is causing the dis- disconnect between typical free cash flow and DCF or so, so, so in the past, see, so you have lines that converge and diverge, right? On charts. And in the past, it used to be that the expenses just kept going up and up and up and up. Right. And then you'd have your depreciation would, would, would eat into some of that. But, but really what you're trying to fi- figure out as an investor, right? Because these are dividend payers and people want to know what the coverage is on the dividend. So you need to know, okay, how much cash is really available to pay the dividend? That's what you want to know. And the DCF allows you to know that. EBITDA doesn't tell you that. And and that's essentially the difference, right? Is what they're peeling out. But, uh, right. But I think, I guess the question... What I, I think, I, I think you actually set this up as well, which is this idea of them trying to sizzle their stake. Them saying we're going to be this toll-paying company, this steady, essentially a utility that you can just collect a dividend on. But then also we're growing, and I think you're and you're sort of telling a story of the the, the longer-term outlook. Like there are questions about, and they might actually want to spin off assets, or they might want to decompose a little bit. But I guess I think that's because. If you just use free cash flow, if you just use cash from operating uh, activities minus CapEx, you get a number that covers the dividend, but it, it's a sm- much smaller number, right? And I guess if if we understand... It it, it, it's about it's about $5 billion instead of $8 billion. No, 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 because it, I, I think we're, we need to define terms here. Because if you look, I think $8 billion is the EBITDA, $5 billion is the distributable cash flow that they report but they're doing they're not they're they're basically saying we have 5 billion we can spend we're going to spend some of it on capex and we're but we're not that we're not counting that as you, you know what i'm saying like we're not counting that as part of the distributable cash flow number that's it's it, they're saying essentially here's our budget is 5 billion and we can spend x on dividends and we can spend y on growth capex but typically when we and buy, and buybacks you, and debt reduction right and typically when we talk about free cash flow we talk about after the capex right we talk about and so they say here's our sustaining capex here's our maintenance capex you know uh, right and i guess and the other expenses that really freak daniel out well, yeah, the other the, the certain <laughs> items we can get, and I feel like taxes is the other thing that we didn't really spend a lot of time on. I feel MLPs. There's a lot of tax issues there. I know they're not a they're not organized as that, but I feel like that was something that, in theory, we could get into. But I guess what I'm getting at is the free cash flow after the capex still covers the dividend, and that to me, I guess 
it seems like by pointing to distributable cash flow, but also saying we're growing, you're having this have your stake and eat it too moment of we're getting credit for all this growth we're getting, but we're also getting credit for all this cash flow we could be generating if we weren't growing. You know what I mean? Does the, I think that's what we were, the presentation to us felt not clear on that point. And that's what we were trying to hit on. Does that make sense to you as a concern? I No, because... I think that it goes back to my statement earlier that you need to know what you're investing in. And it really, you know, it, it kind of, look, I, Dan, you guys know that I think that half the people that write on in the financial industry, not Seeking Alpha in particular, but half of the writing out there, financial writing is junk. And because it's not real analysis, it's just superficial regurgitation. Sure. And, you know, you've got this mantra of give me data, 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 but then people don't have any idea what the data means. And so in this case, you can, you can, you can peel this out either way you want. If you want to take the measure after CapEx, fine. If you want to say this is the total pool that can go towards shareholder yield plus CapEx, right? Shareholder yield is debt reduction, dividends, and buybacks. And then you can throw CapEx in there or you can peel them out, you know, whatever you want. We, we know that CapEx is going to be roughly flat for a pretty long time to drifting downward. If you take a look at their presentation, the current presentation uh, in the backlog section, page 13 of the April presentation. And let me see here, 13 and 14 maybe. Yeah, whatever it is, thirteen, page thirteen, it might be fourteen as well. But they're they're only gonna, you know, they're 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 telling you what they're gonna spend, and and, and you know you're from so you have to okay, Kinder Morgan versus the industry. Let's do it that way. Kinder Morgan's telling you that they're not gonna grow that much. They're telling you that, right? I mean, because they're saying, look, our capex is gonna stay about flat, and we might sell some stuff off. And, you know, but you have the, the rest of the MLP industry. And I, I totally agree with you. The MLP industry deserved a lot of the beatdown they got because um, between the screwy arrangement between general partners and limited partners or general partners could like basically just keep taking pounds of flesh from the limited partners, but the limited partners were all of us. I forget what those rights uh, I. IGRs or something they were called, right. IDRs, whatever they were called. You know, the MLP industry is it has been converting to the C corp, right? Why is that? One, it's a cleaner, cleaner way of doing the accounting, for sure. And 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 the capital structure, I think, is more legitimate, and you don't have anybody skimming the the the, the limited partnerships, right? You don't have general partners skimming the limited partnerships, and you know that come that 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 basically puts the shareholders in alignment with management at least theoretically right i mean management all the time says they're in alignment with shareholders but then they don't invest their own money and they take these exorbitant bonuses and things like that but you know you take a look at a company like kinder morgan he doesn't take a salary he doesn't get any bonuses i think he has a health care plan and gets to use the jet but you know he doesn't get paid really and he's been investing literally tens of millions of his own dollars in these shares. Why would he do that? I think it's important that we ask that question here in a second. But as far as distributable cash flow, look, if you want to use the other measure, that's fine as long as you understand it. But I think using distributable cash flow now versus five years ago 
is important because it tells you what they're going to continue to have to put towards uh, dividends and share buybacks and what happens what happens if they have more money fall to the bottom line which they could if they sold assets or if they decide to spend closer to 2 billion next year instead of 3 billion right so all of a sudden that's an extra billion dollars and you know hey a billion here a billion there it adds up you know eventually it's real money and you know so i think that that's important now semantically would you like everybody in the whole world to say things exactly the same way sure but then what fun would dating be <laughs> i would uh i don't know yeah i don't know how to answer that but i do want to get okay i you're probably eager to move on from this and i think i risk uh sort of beating a dead horse by going in, into this again but i just want to i'm looking at Slide 53 of their January 23rd presentation. And it gets at a couple of things that you're talking about. It compare, it has a basically a bar chart that compares DDNA versus sustaining capital. Right. And we see that DDNA is four times sustaining capital uh, for 2019 estimates. It's pretty much the same relationship throughout the course of the chart from 2010 on. So, Two things, I think just in the simplest terms possible, you already touched on this, but just in the most sort of straight ahead way we can, how do we understand this huge disconnect between the DDNA and the sustaining capital? Because I think that was where Daniel and I got thrown. It's just so, the, the delta is so big between these two figures. So what's up with that? So, hmm. How how do you explain depreciation, depletion, amortization? So the depreciation will eventually disappear, right? Someday. Five years I is that the is that the measure? Is it five years after you build it? That's how long it you get five years to depreciate it. So I don't know useful life is for a pipeline or for any yeah, I, I, that, that, that one you got I don't know how long they depreciate those assets but the sustaining capital is, is important to know right the DDA is going to come down over time so the sustaining capital is what's important how much does it cost just to keep you know keep the current uh, assets running and when you break it out and I think this is important to know because I talked about the four different segments of the of the uh, business it's more expensive to you know to maintain a terminal than a pipeline right especially a natural gas pipeline or a liquids pipeline the, the natural gas pipelines are the cheapest things out there to run so in my opinion i think that you are likely to see both dda and sustainable you know you know sustain what, what, they, what they call it, what, sustainable spending or whatever the, the, the money that it takes to run yeah. things i think that's going to come down over time because I foresee them selling off assets. I think they're going to sell off terminals. I think they're going to sell off liquids pipelines. I think they're going to sell off CO2. I don't know that, but they, they, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with it right now. It, it, the thing about CO2 is that it's going to be a growing business for a while until it falls off a cliff. So, you know, what do you do with CO2? Do you, do you grow it for a while and then sell it? Do you just sell it now because it's probably priced pretty well? The oil and the natural liquids gas pipelines, when do you sell those? The terminals, 
you know, they talk about export capacity to the rest of the world, but the rest of the world's going alternative energy too. So you have to try to figure out, right, as a manager, and then as an investor, you have to decide if the manager is going to make smart decisions. But as a manager, when do you start getting rid of these assets or winding them down? And that's going to a pre, uh, you know, impact DDNA because you may or may not have the assets anymore. And it's going to impact how much money it takes to run the business. Here's my thought. I, I trust Kinder, uh, Richard Kinder to, to do this well. He was the first one to switch to a C-Corp, shocked everybody when he did it, because he saw that the go-go growth days of the MLPs were going away. And he understood that they had to get rid of the, the, the structure in general, because MLP uh, owners were getting ripped off by and large. At Kinder Morgan, they didn't have that set up exactly, but he knew what was coming. So as far as being forward-looking, of the people in the industry, Richard Kinder might be the guy. Uh, you know, the, the people who run Williams are good. People who run Enbridge are pretty good. But as far as looking forward and, and, and understanding the future, and plus, let's be realistic, he's an old guy. He knows he can't run it forever. He might just want to cash out. I think that that's a legitimate possibility. Why would you be buying all these shares if there wasn't a cash out thing coming? So, you know, I, I don't know that this data that you're looking at, I, I don't know that it's all that important that you look at it from the standpoint of does it tell you anything about the future? I think you need to find out what the future tells you about what those numbers are going to do. Yeah. I think they're much more important. Yeah, I think I think you're hitting on an important point there. And I just, I want to press on that point one more time. And that regards the sort of, change and the pivot that management might take going from a kind of more growth focus, new project focus company uh, with with a corresponding exp expansion of DDNA and, a, and an expansion of sustaining capital. We've seen sustaining capital and DDNA go up and to the right for the past 10 years. And we also have from this presentation, I forget the exact figure, but there are additional growth projects slated for 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So they're, they're finishing I, up and stuff. Yeah. They're finishing things up. So yeah. So it just, what evidence do you point to that, that, I mean, you, you mentioned Kinder's motivations personally. Do you have other sort of basis for your belief that? We're going to see more of an asset unwind and a more uh, cash flow distribution focused position from management from here. Well, they have told you they're going to keep raising the distribution and they've done it for three years running. There's an $800 billion supposed market for more infrastructure. And they're saying they're going to do two or three billion a year. I mean, if you were a go-go growth company and there's an $800 billion market out there, would you brag about two or three billion if you're one of the biggest players? No, you'd be saying we're going to get 20 billion of that business every year. So they have brought back in their projections dramatically. They have focused on cash flow and distributions. Uh, they have a $2 billion, $2 billion, yeah, $2 billion buyback authorized, uh, which they're not using right now. Uh, but he said that when the time comes, they will. And think about this. 
If you're Richard Kinder and you know that you have a $2 billion, yeah, I'm not saying that anybody's Machiavellian here, but you have a $2 billion buyback in your pocket. Would you buy shares today before that happened? I would, right? So if I'm Richard Kinder and I'm buying back shares of stock and, you know, millions and millions of dollars, I forget how much it was. It was like $107 million this year. It was, it was a giant number. So he's putting his net worth into Kinder Morgan. Why would he do that? I mean, that's a very fundamental question. And data doesn't tell you that answer, right? How do you really make money in, in the stock market? You have to figure out a value for things that the market isn't valuing. And right now, the market isn't valuing the buyback. The market isn't valuing the CO2 at all. Uh, the market isn't giving them any, you know, they're going to make six, seven, eight hundred million dollars unwinding the rest of the Canada stuff. You know, they, you know, and I will say they got a gift from God when Trudeau bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline for four and a half billion dollars. I mean, you know, there's, there's a long, long talk you can have about that. But, uh, you know, whatever. Well, well, however you think, you know, see, I agree that Canada needs that pipeline. And I agree that America needs that pipeline. Because if we had that pipeline, we wouldn't need any oil from the Middle East, right? But you got the environmentalists who prioritize, you know, not having one more pipeline versus we would never need oil from the Middle East again. I think that's stupid. I think it's myopic. And, you know, I think it doesn't look at the big picture. I would much rather have one more pipeline that might drip a little bit than have to keep on dealing with the Middle East. But, you know, hey, I'm I'm not there, you know, doing the protest. And I know that that means a lot to them. And, and I'm an environmentalist. I mean, I'm telling people it's the end of the oil age. I've changed my investment firm to being a sustainable investing firm. But when, when you weigh, should we have one more pipeline to, to, to be free from OPEC versus not having that pipeline because we want to, you know, we don't want a brand new pipeline versus an old one. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. My, my Vulcan mind is going crazy. But uh, so in, in any case, I think that we need to value the parts of the company that aren't valued yet. And there's a lot of parts in this company that aren't valued. Once this stock shoots up, right? So the dividend's five percent now. The, the 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 dividend hounds will eventually pound the, the yield back down to four. They'll increase the dividend. It'll go up. Dividend hounds will pound it back down to four. At some point, there'll be a point where the company is fairly valued. I think that that number is right around thirty to forty dollars a share. I could be wrong, but I'm taking a look at what I think they're going to sell. And I'm taking a light accounting of that. They could sell way more than I think. If it were me, I would sell everything but the natural gas pipelines and a handful of terminals and a handful of supporting you know, things for the pipelines. And I would call up Williams Brothers and I'd say, hey, how'd you like the merge? That's what I would do. And if I were the CEO. And I have to think that Richard Kinder is smarter than me. So at least on this business. So if I can see that those are good strategic opportunities, and you can read my articles. I talked about GameStop. I've talked about Facebook. I talked about, you know, I said GE was going to go into the teens when I was 30. I said Facebook was going to drop $50 a share. It did. I said the GameStop was going to go into oblivion if they didn't change their business model. They didn't change their business model. Now they're headed for oblivion. 
you know, you go right through all of that stuff. If you look at these as companies, and Buffett harps on this all the time, right? Look at these as companies and operating businesses and think about what you would do if you were the CEO or CFO. And if you can figure it out, and these managers are going in a certain direction that justifies what you're thinking, and it and it's working like it is, because everything they've said they do in the last, you know, since 2016, everything they said they do, they did and it worked. Now you have to ask yourself a question. Okay, does the market get it yet? Is there a discrepancy between what they're trading for and what they should be trading for? This stock should jump to about $24 a share imminently with this dividend raise. Why didn't it? Because you got people running away saying, I got kindred. You know what? Damn it, you want to get kindred. So just, Kirk, to I, I want to get to one or two other things, but just quickly, when you're going you know, 30 to 40, It's a, you, you've said a 4% dividend yield is sort of one way to think about the value that this company should have. Anything? That, 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 that's, the, that's the dividend yield that it always kind of floats back to. And that companies like this float back. So is that, is that where you do, like, I'm not trying to get too in the weeds on your price target, but is that where you're basically going is that they're eventually, they've talked about getting the dividend up to, you know, another 20 to 30%. And so then you do the math there and that's where you get into the thirties, the thirties essentially. Is that how you're thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, I said back to a year and a half ago, that we get to around 30 and that's when I was trading for like 16. I said, it's basically going to double. And you know, with your dividends, you're, you're going to, you know, you'll be able to double your money and you know, it'll be a little bit better than that. And, and that, and, and my, when, when I say 30 to 40, I think it'll probably be closer to 40 than 30 because I think they'll spin out. Uh, I think they'll sell off more assets. And I also think that it's a pretty strong possibility that they merge with, with Williams in particular, because I don't think they'll let Exxon or Chevron buy Kinder Morgan, uh, but I could be wrong. I mean, who knows what the justice department will do? You know, I, I think that Kinder Morgan is clearly in play and that'll become more obvious over the next couple of years. But, they have great assets, and these are irreplaceable assets, right? If we can't build the Trans Mountain Pipeline to keep us out of dealing with the Middle East, what can we build, right? If you're not in Texas or Wyoming or Oklahoma, right, what can you build? I mean, there's, there's almost – there's like 37 states that won't let you build. So – you know, there's limited growth opportunities, you know, so these assets are very irreplaceable. You're not going to be able to, you know, you're not, there's not going to suddenly be competition. And that's where the, um, you know, the durable comparative competitive right. advantage. That was going to be my, my question I was going to. And I think you're, you're sort of, it, it, let me just lead, I, you've sort of led up to it, but let me re-lead up to it. It sounds like the the advantage that you're spelling for Kinder, why they're better than, other companies or why they have an enduring edge is that it's tough to build at this point. And so they sort of even ignore that it's just a pipe in the ground. The fact is that the pipes are in the ground. So they have that incumbency and also that they've gotten religion on discipline. Right. And so you're, and right. those Absolutely. are the two things that make them better than the average bear when it comes to the pipeline industry. Is that fair? Well, I think it makes them better than the average bear, even in the dividend space, because when you take a look at other dividend paying stocks, um, and Williams is very good too, you know, don't, don't get me, and so is Enbridge. Um, 
but the reality is is that you want to be natural gas heavy because all the liquids are slowly going to face challenges. Um, the terminals are difficult and expensive to maintain and, 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 and to use. So, you know, I think that you want to go asset light on the terminals. Um, but even compared to just your regular dividend payers, the reality is that when you take a look at, say, REITs, let's compare it to REITs. The problem with REITs is that virtually all real estate is bid up right now. And the, ca the sustainable cash flows uh, probably can't go any higher. So what's going to happen to them when occupancy rates go down and rents go down? Because it's going to happen. And I was just uh, this, this is actually what me and Dividend Sleuth, who writes for me, um, are, are, uh, we were talking about this by email today. What's going to happen to the REITs in the commercial space when there's more telecommuting? What's going to happen to the apartment REITs when we finally build out more single-family homes? What's going to happen to the mall operators who, you know, face Amazon and, you know, I've got two Simon properties near me and I see how they're redeveloping them. One of them is doing great and one of them just sucks. So, you know, and they're putting ca the equal CapEx into both places. So when you compare Kinder Morgan to REITs, when you compare Kinder Morgan to chemical companies or some of the other, you know, you know, consumer durable companies that pay out these dividends, you got to start asking yourself, who's really in a bigger spot? The companies that are fair, that are fairly valued and expensive, or the companies like this one that nobody quite understands and is undervalued because people aren't assigning value to the various pieces. You know, Buffett, Druckenmiller, you go right down the list. They all tell you, find the stuff that people aren't valuing, invest in those companies, and you get a free roll on the stuff that's not being valued. And, and so I would say that. What people understand about Kinder Morgan, they're basically valuing at 20 bucks a share. Okay, so what don't they understand about Kinder Morgan? Well, judging on the last webinar and today and things that I hear and read on those chat boards, people don't understand a lot about Kinder Morgan. That tells me that there's some value embedded in there if this is really a going concern. So I, I want to, uh, Mike's going to jump in with one question, but I wanted to just, I, I like the comparison to REITs. I've been thinking a lot about REITs. I actually want to write something seeking out. I've been thinking a lot about the the way the REIT, REIT investors rely on FFO, funds from operations and adjusted FFO. And it's sort of the same thing where CapEx is dealt with in a weird way. And then you, you're, you, there's not, there's some standards to it, but they're flexible, right? And so that leads to if you haven't done the work, then you can you end up relying on management. So you know, I think we still sort of degree disagree to some degree on the handling of DCF versus free cash flow, et cetera. But you know, it sounds like you've you've spent the time here to to come to your own conclusion. So that's I think that's what investors need to do here. But I I do get I think that's part of where we started was. When you get to these sorts of dividend favorite crowds, it gets easier to just rely on the the management numbers and management metrics, which leads to when they're not standard. And of course, there's more that goes into it, as you said, rear view mirror versus looking forward, so on. But I think that's what the I think the REITs comparison is really astute, just it, not in terms of the business analysis, but also in terms of the the accounting, the way that investors view them, and the way they're the way we sort of investors are 
myself included, I've made mistakes in the REIT space, um, but the including with mall REITs, which is especially sort of not em- embarrassing is a touch strong, but unfortunate. And uh, it's just like you, you get into those metrics and you sort of take them for what they are without thinking enough independently about where it might go. Well, and I and I think you're really on to something with the REITs. I think that your the concerns about the DCF were very appropriate five, six, seven years ago before the stocks crashed. I think that the questions about how REITs are doing their presenting are very similar. I think you should have the same concerns about REITs today that you should have had about MLP six, seven years ago. I think the REITs have a comeuppance that's similar to what happened to the MLPs. And I don't know when it happens, probably during the next economic slowdown, whenever that is. I mean, I I just read somewhere that we're never, ever going to have another recession. So, you know, that's good. But, uh, you know, (laughs) if we do have a recession, what happens to some of these REITs? And can they really maintain their their FFO? Can they really retain? Can they really maintain, you know, the 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 cash flow that they're that they have right now? Full occupancy at high rent. Anybody who's ever owned real estate in their life knows that that doesn't last long. It's very rare that you have full occupancy at dream rents. It just doesn't last very long. Economics, right? Supply and demand curves, equilibrium. Do we ever really stay at equilibrium? No, we pass through it, right? We may stay at equilibrium for a year or two or three. Seems like we've been there a little while now, but I think now that we're, I think that we're probably, I think you can pretty easily make the argument on a lot of asset classes that they're overvalued. So above equilibrium pricing, when does it come down to equilibrium? Will it stop at equilibrium? No, because people will start to cry and blame other people. I lost money. And then you'll have that negative feedback loop and it'll overshoot. It happens every single time. No matter how many times guys like me come on and say, control your emotions. Understand the risks. What happens to your portfolio if this asset drops 20 or 30%? And if you can't answer that question, then maybe you shouldn't be in the assets, right? So you need to understand what the risks are of the asset and how it would impact you. And I think that there are spaces in the market now, REITs in particular, but a lot of old economy stuff, right? I got made fun of for saying sell your grandpa stocks. But hey, if you sold your grandpa stocks when I said to, or any time before or after, and, and bought more technology, you know, you'd been doing better. And that's really where I have most of my money is technology. But, you know, there there are there are spots in the markets where there's value. And, you know, you just hunt for those. And, and it really comes down to what is in a company that people are completely discounting to zero. Should it be should it be discounted to zero? In most cases, the answer is no. It's, it's, you know, we can talk about Tesla the same way. You know, people are discounting Tesla to zero, and that's silly. You know, I, you know, it's, Elon Musk, you know, farts money when he needs financing. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how big is the dilution going to be? 
You know, I wrote that article back in, uh, I don't know, it was in the fall sometime. I told people, sell your Tesla shares at 340. I got it from both sides. The bears, you know, right, the TSLQ crowd told me I was nuts. It's going all the way to zero, not just to 200. And the people who, you know, are, are the fanboys, they said, ah, it's going to 450. Yeah, Mike, I think it is going to 450, but I think it's going to 200 first. <laughs> You know, whatever. I did not think we were going to get to Tesla on this podcast, but I'm glad. I'm glad we're there now. It's all energy, right? I mean, it's energy, <laughs> technology, all this stuff. It yes. runs the world, but but it goes to investor psychology. Right now, investor psychology is negative on energy. A lot of it's deserved, but it's creating pockets of value. I've said in my web webinars over on YouTube, and I I pop them in the articles and, and blogs here. The reality is that you want to stay away from the super high debt exploration and production companies, right? Uh, because if they don't have scale and some pricing power and plum assets, they're in trouble. All these second tier drillers, uh, especially a lot of the ones offshore, the ones that have expensive rock, right? Rock is the acreage that they're drilling. Um, and they have bad balance sheets and they have you know, they they don't have the best technology. All the second, third tier E&Ps are in trouble. That's why, you know, I had my dirty dozen oil stocks. There's not much more than those dozen. I mean, there might be another 10 companies out there worth investing in out of 70. You know, so let's, so, so let's I think that's a good, that leads into my final question, which is, um, around kind of investor psychology and context and all those things you've been hitting on. So Daniel and I came to Kinder Morgan and we said at the beginning of our podcast that this is an area where we're not as strong analytically. And that bore out in the podcast and our readers and listeners were critical of us for that. And I think there's kind of a double-edged sword here. On, on one hand, if you take a kind of naive approach where you just look at the financial statements coming out without all this management context and other things, you may be able to see the company more objectively than someone who's been following it for a long time. On the other hand, if you're not knowledgeable, then you can miss some major factors affecting the stock. So how do you think that applies to Kinder Morgan? All right. Well... All right, so we'll do two things here. First of all, with Kinder Morgan, all the things we discussed are things that you need to learn about, whether you're starting fresh or whether you're, you've been following the company for 10 years or 20 years. Um, so people come into these things from different perspectives, right? You know, you might have done some screening and, hey, this one popped up a couple times. Or you might have known about the company forever but never invested. Or you might be brand new and just guessing. You know, hey, I, this one has a big fat dividend. Let me see what, what, I, what I can learn about it. So, you know, whether you are new or old to a stock, you need to do the drill down. And, and here's where the shameless plug comes in. Over at Margin of Safety Investing, which I run, and I have uh, two other analysts, and I'm about to hire another dividend guy who's doing something neat. I, I tell them you want to be unemotional and you want to be cold-blooded killers because if you love a stock, right, or you hate a stock, you're emotional. You need to not care about the stock. Care about the company and care about the business, care about the sector, 
care about how the government can impact the company, you know, care about how the big secular trends are playing out. You know, we have a process. We have a four-step process. What are the big secular trends? How does the government and central bank maybe impact the, the company in question? You know, uh, what are the fundamentals of the company, which we talked a lot about today with Kinder Morgan? And then, you know, we do price trend analysis. You know, I use a lot of discounted cash flows, or excuse me, uh, uh, money flows. I use money flows uh, to see if there's money going into the asset or coming out. Discounted cash flows up on the fundamental side. So we have a step-by-step process. We don't say, oh, I love this company because it's been going up for me. Or I hate this company because it's been going down for me. And that's just the wrong way to invest. And investor psychology is like that. That's why 80% of the people can't beat the market and they should probably index. Uh, maybe do a little little minor uh, rebalancing towards value-priced ETFs once in a while when you know they have growth. But you know if you're going to pick out stocks, whether it's Kinder Morgan or anybody else, uh, you have to understand the business. And if you're not able to understand the business, don't do it. And, you know, if you want to follow a guy like me, that's fine. Uh, if you want, to, if you're happy making whatever the index makes, that's fine. You, know, you have to decide what you're willing to do. The one thing I will point out, though, is that indexes inherently, by their nature, by definition, take 100% of the risk of the market. Right, the S and P 500 takes 100% of the risk of the market. Well, I think with Kinder Morgan, and if I had 30 more of these companies, at about 30 companies, you can actually take way less risk than the market. Can't do it with one company. One company you have infinite risk. But with about 30 companies, diversified across several sectors, six or seven sectors is usually what it takes. You can have less risk than the market than the S P 500, but with more upside. And that's what we're looking to do. We want less risk than the SP 500 and more upside by having a process. And I stay away from the edges in my growth portfolios. My growth portfolios, it's all home run stocks. And some of them will strike out or do zero, but some of them, like exact sciences, will go up, you know, a thousand percent. And over in the dividend portfolios, we're looking for companies like Kinder Morgan that at the moment are undervalued. And here's the thing. When Kinder Morgan goes from 20 to 30 to 40, let's say that's what happens in the next four or five years. What's going to happen at the top of that market, Daniel? Everybody's going to love it, right? Everybody's going to love Kinder Morgan when it gets to 30 or $40 a share. All of a sudden, it'll we be a love it, yeah, fest, right? It's happening. It happens all the time, for sure. And, and, and so what am I going to do when everybody <laughs> loves it? I think I know. I, I, I'm going to say, you know what? Here's a box of chocolates. Take the shares, too. You know, everybody hates it right now. So I'm buying it because I can I can find value in Kinder Morgan. Some of the EMPs I find value in. Not all of them. Actually, not about two-thirds of them. About two-thirds of them I think are doomed. But I think about a third of them are in good shape. And they're going to benefit from oligopoly pricing pressure over time and shortages and, and a more controlled supply and demand picture. It's going to be a volatile path to get there. You know, we'll see how it shakes out. But yeah, I, I think that with Kinder Morgan, folks need to put aside the whole, I got kindered, maybe come back if it's in their risk profile. You know, you have to know what your risk profile is. And I think that most people think, this is 25 years of being an investment advisor, right? I've been managing people's money since 1996. 
95. I don't know. I think it was a broker in 95. I got became an advisor in 96. But yeah, I was a broker for a while. I believe that most people's risk tolerance is lower than what they say it is. Except, except when things are going bad. When things are going bad and everybody's pouting, their risk tolerance is actually higher than they think it is. And it should be even higher. But when things are good or doing okay or people are ignoring it, when complacency sets in, most people's risk tolerance is usually is really way lower than what they tell you. And, 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 and people need to look in the mirror and say, okay, what really is my risk tolerance? If I lost 20% over the next year, how would I react? Would it impact my standard of living? Or would I up my 401k contribution? Right right now, I, I'm telling people that their 401k should be 25 to 50% in the cash account or money market and wait for the next pullback to jam it back into an S&P 500 fund or something. But just keep increasing how much you put into your 401k because if you're 30 years old or 40 years old, if you're not saving 20% of your, your pay towards retirement, man, you, you're working until you're 70 or 75. So, you know, save 20% of what you're earning, 25% if you can pull it off, and manage your asset allocation based on, you know, the edges of the market. Right now, we're somewhere between a second and third standard deviation overvalued. Not as overvalued as 2000 or 2007, but but more overvalued than almost any other time. So do we spike it and do we go up again? Do we have one more big rally before the thump? Or do we get a thump, a rally, and then another thump? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I suspect that we have a decent year this year and that we get, you know, my hashtag on Twitter is Crash 2020. So I'll stick with that. I think what, I think when the buybacks slow down, All I right. think we're in trouble. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's a place that we can – that's a landing spot. So let's uh, – this was let's wrap there. This was really great, Kirk. We, I think the it's good back and forth. I think we deepened the conversation on Kinder Morgan for sure, and I think we got a lot of context. Um, and I think it's, I think, yeah, I think that just kind of fills out the discussion. And hopefully, anybody who's listened to this, it helps them to better understand how to think about the stock, think about their investing in general. And so, really appreciate you taking the time to go into this with us and and yeah thank you so much anytime folks should probably play it back at 125 <laughs> percent they'll slow it down for the dunesbury joke <laughs> there, there you go yeah yeah i, I didn't know no, where i lost it back. Down. Play it back. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys have a good weekend all right Kirk, Kirk. take care man bye all right bye bye let's give one last word to oppenheimer funds about their podcast megatrends There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Idea. We hope you enjoyed this one more than last time out. We're hoping to speak to one or two more people about KMI, so stay tuned. If you did or didn't like this podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes so you can either encourage or warn off other investors from it. Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com if you have any requests or feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Behind the Ideas.